a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 1015 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. Last time, we walked through 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 11, and we started looking at the beginning of the reign of King Saul, and now we come to chapter 12. And it's a very important message that Samuel gave the people as he's basically turning over the leadership of the people to King Saul. He will no longer be their main leader. Saul will be. So I want us to look at Samuel's message to the people beginning in verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I'm old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. So, He says here in verse 1, I've obeyed your voice in all that you said. You have a king now, and that's Saul, of course. And my sons, as you notice, are not up here with me. They're They're not over you. They're down there with you. It seems that Eli, you remember Eli, was not really willing to take authority from his ungodly sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He, He mildly rebuked them, but he didn't deal with it. But it sounds like here that Samuel really did take authority from his ungodly sons, Joel and Abijah. It must have been really painful for him, but apparently he did it. And he adds, I've walked before you from my youth until this day. And I think that can mean two things. First of all, his way of life has been evident to them. He's been walking out in front so they can see him. But also I think maybe there's an implication of leadership here. I have led you. I've walked before you. I've been out in front walking in the ways of the Lord so you could see how it's done. And and I've told you how to walk in the ways of the Lord. And you've had an opportunity to learn that from me. Verse 3 says, Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. And that's a reference to Saul. He's been the anointed king now. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I'll restore it to you. And they said, Samuel, you've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed, probably pointing over to Saul, is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So Samuel may be doing two different things here. For one thing, he's establishing the fact he's not behaved in a way that should cause them to be unhappy with his leadership. They, they wanted a human king in spite of the fact that God has been leading them beautifully through Samuel. They just were afraid of Samuel's sons, of course. 
they're anticipating they're not going to like things after Samuel dies. That's going to really be a long time before Samuel dies. We'll see that later. Uh, but they're unhappy with Samuel's sons. They're fearing for their future because these sons are not godly men. It may be possible also that Samuel wanted this public witness to the fact that he had walked before them in a godly way to maybe head off at the past the possibility of things going wrong during the reign of Saul and Saul saying, this is all Samuel's fault. <laughs> he made this mess. I'm having to fix it now. Isn't that common? I mean, that's the way it happens in America, isn't it? When a new president comes on the scene, all the problems he blames on the predecessor. It doesn't matter which party he's in. That's just that's just the way it's done. You try to blame it as much as you can on your predecessor. Unless your predecessor happens to be of your own party, then you try to blame it on the most recent predecessor of the other party. Anyway, you know how that works. And, and it's possible that Samuel was thinking, they're going to try to blame me for the problems one of these days. So I want to head that off at the pass. Beginning in verse 6, Samuel's going to remind them of all the Lord has done for them. And the purpose is to bring glory to God, not Israel, but to God. Look at verse 6. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. So they were oppressed in Egypt, but God delivered them. But eventually they forgot God and they got in trouble over and over and over. But in verses 10 and 11, God's going to remind them that when they cried out to him, he always delivered them. Verse 10, they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, that's Gideon and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. So God's reminding them, I never did abandon you. You abandoned me. But when you finally woke up and confessed your sin and cried out to me in repentance, I delivered you. But over and over again, you abandoned me again and again. And now you're doing it again. But when they do reject God as their king, and when they cry out for a human king to be like their neighbors, God said to Samuel, this is back in chapter 8, verse 7 and verse 9, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're now doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. But even then, you see, God did not say, okay, guys, if you want a king, go find yourselves a king. He didn't do that. He, he, he's going to give them what they want, but he's going to stay in charge of them. God is going to be the one that picks the king. He picked Saul. Now, he picked Saul because he knew Saul was the kind of man they thought they wanted. He fit that image. He was tall and good looking like the people thought a king should be. So God said, I am going to give you what you want, but you're not going to like it. And once again, we've already talked about this, but it's a good reminder that when we pray, it's good to say, Lord, 
You told me to make my request known, so I'm doing that. I'm obeying you. But I know I see through a glass darkly. I know you know what's best for me, and you know what's best for the people I'm praying for. So please, Lord, I'm going to ask the best I know how, but I want you to do what's best, what will bring you the most glory, what will bring us the most joy in the long run. That's a good way to pray. We don't just demand our way. Verse 12, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you've chosen, for whom you've asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So God is the one who set Saul over them. But God knew that Saul was the one they wanted, and he looked the part. Paul underlines this same idea in, in Acts chapter 13 when he was uh, speaking to the synagogue at Pisidian in Antioch. This is on his first missionary journey. He said, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul. They didn't go out and get Saul. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So I believe God intended for them to have a king. They just didn't trust him. They got ahead of him. They thought they couldn't wait. If they'd waited patiently on God, what I believe probably would have happened is he would have used Samuel to anoint the next king, but it wouldn't have been Saul. It would have been David at the proper time. And I think it, that would have meant David would have been the first king of Israel. And David might have helped them keep their focus on God instead of on himself, their human king, and their desire to be like other nations. So Israel's going about it in the wrong way, getting ahead of God, very wicked, but God is going to use that to accomplish his purposes. He does that quite frequently. It reminds us of Joseph's brothers. Remember, they were acting very wickedly when they sold him into slavery. But God had a plan. And he used their wickedness to do something really amazing. And you remember Joseph's words to them when everything finally comes out and they understand who he is. He said, I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God had a plan even behind your evil, wicked behavior. God does that kind of thing over and over and over. I believe that began when Satan rebelled against God in the very beginning. Remember that? When Satan rebelled against God, it made it possible for Jesus Christ to win the victory and to be our victorious and overcoming Lord and Savior. If Satan had not rebelled, there would not have been anything to overcome. God used Satan's rebellion at the very beginning. Isn't that amazing how he does that? It happened when Adam chose to sin in the Garden of Eden. That sin led eventually to the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, of the second and last Adam. We see the same kind of thing when Judas betrayed Jesus. That was a horrible sin, the betrayal of Judas. But that betrayal led to the cross and our salvation. So over and over again, God uses terrible sin and wickedness. That doesn't mean it's not sinful. It's very sinful. It's very wicked. But God knows how to use wickedness even to accomplish his purposes and to bring about his glory. It's a major part of the story of redemption. God does that again and again. God even uses Satan himself. Now, let's think about this just a little bit further here because you might have this question come to mind. If God eventually intended for Israel to have a king, then why didn't he just set it up that way from the beginning? You know, when, when, when he brought them out of Egypt after they'd grown into a people, a large population, and he puts Moses to lead them, why didn't he make Moses King Moses? And after him, King Joshua. Just have kings from the beginning. Well, I think probably it was because God wanted them to learn this lesson that they had such a hard time learning, and I guess we're 
can be just as hard-hearted as they. But God wanted Israel to learn to look to him as their ultimate king, their ultimate leader. And even though later he would use human kings, and that was part of his plan, he wanted to give them a chance to realize that God himself was the king of all those other kings. He's the real king over all the other kings. He's the power behind them all. He's in one of charge of all the kings and all the rulers. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And if he had made Moses king at the very beginning, it might have been a lot harder for them, even though they still struggled with this, it might have been a lot harder for them to really internalize that and understand it. It could have been really tempting just to focus on their human king and forget that God is the true king. Remember, they, they had an almost ungodly reverence for Moses the way it was. They almost made him into a, a little god of some kind. And, and another thing, of course, God wanted to realize, we've seen this so many times, but he wanted to internalize it through and through, was how desperately wicked and unfaithful their hearts were. They could not depend on themselves. They may have had good intentions, but over and over again, when God delivers them, they, they start giving thanks to God, they worship him, they praise him. And then it's not long before they get these ideas of their own and start substituting their little ideas for God and for his wisdom. And they get their focus off God. They start going down a road that leads to more pain and more destruction. And eventually things get bad enough, they cry out to God again. We've seen that over and over. But you know, that's not just the account of Israel. It's the account of all of us. We see our nation heading down a road that leads to destruction and we're repeating the same behavior of so many other nations before us. And we can pray, and I think we ought to pray, that before that total destruction and chaos comes, that somehow we might wake up and realize our desperate sin and our desperate need for God. That will take a supernatural work from God, but we can pray for it, can't we? We should all be praying for that. But, you know, we can get even more personal and not just thinking about our country. We can see it happening in our country, but look at our own lives. So many times God draws us to himself. We look to him in the beginning and we're saved when he first draws us to himself. And then it's so easy over a period of time to get our eyes off of him. We get busy. We get wrapped up in the things of the world. We get maybe too clever in our own thinking. We come up with our own schemes and our own plans. And we start heading down a road that leads to pain and it leads to death. And then maybe... Finally, God allows the bottom to fall out for us, and we wake up and we cry out to him, and we get our focus back where it belongs. It's, isn't it tragic how many times that happens to Christians? It's tragic when we wait for disaster to come before we finally wake up and cry out to God. God wanted them, and he wants us, to realize that tendency of all humanity is to repeat that cycle over and over and over. That's why I keep emphasizing it. it is so easy and it is so common. It's one of the huge lessons we get over and over again as we read the Old Testament. One generation comes back to God, the next forgets him, gets full of themselves. It, it should remind us how desperately we need him to guard our thinking and, and our plans, protect us from ourselves, you know, our own weird, crazy thinking. And another thing, when God allows them to reject him and grants them their request for a king, he's going to use that to remind them and remind us of just how incredibly gracious he is, how, how awesome God's grace is. In spite of their wickedness, in spite of our sin, he is a God of grace and mercy. We're going to see that more clearly. We'll get to verse 20. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord, if you will fear the Lord and serve him, 
and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Now, thunder and rain would have been a very unusual thing at that time of the year. This was a time of the wheat harvest. It would have been a clear sign from God to them. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you've done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we've added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So for the moment, they seem to recognize we really have messed up. We've done something wrong. But in verse 20, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. And when I first read that, I think, wait a minute, Samuel, did you misspeak there? Didn't you mean you need to be very afraid because you've done all this evil? <laughs> But no, he meant what he said. He says, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. In other words, you can still repent. You can still serve the Lord. Just do it. God's willing to pour out his grace on you right now. Verse 21, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. It's amazing how many times they and we can be deceived into thinking that something besides God will deliver us. We can get it in our heads. If I just had a little more money, isn't that easy to think? If I just had a little more money, uh, that would deliver me. That would save me. <laughs> or maybe if I just had the right people elected to office, they'll fix things. But ultimately, God wants us to learn if we trust anything other than him, it's going to be empty. Look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great namesake because it's pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Now, this is huge. The Lord says, I will not forsake you, but it's not because of you. It's not because of all your good deeds. It's not because you've done the right thing. It's not because you've been faithful. It's not for your sake. He says, it's because of my sake. It's for my great name's sake. God says, I will bring honor to my name, and I'll do that by showing grace to you. Now, he does the same for us, guys. When we realize the seriousness of our sin and we confess our sin to him, you know what he does. He promises, right? He forgives us. He, he pours out his grace on us. He redeems us from all our sin and all our rebellion. And over and over, he blesses us beyond what we could ever hope for, especially when we think about our sins. We're like, Lord, how can you bless me so much? It's to demonstrate his grace and to demonstrate the power of his name. And it should cause us to say, Lord, you're amazing. You look how you've blessed me. And after all the sin I've done, it's hard to take it in. You just overwhelm me with your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And so God, through the people's sin, inaugurates a series of human kings. A few of them were pretty good men, great men as far as human kings go. David, Hezekiah, Josiah, they were all good kings. They're all men. And inevitably, they're going to fail in certain ways, just as all men do. All human beings will fail except one, the king of kings. 
the king to whom all these other kings were going to point to, King Jesus, the ultimate king. And Samuel says, God's doing this for the sake of his great name. God wants people to know about his name. He wants people to know about his character. He wants people to know about his power. He wants people to know about his grace. We see this over and over in the Bible. Romans chapter 9, verse 17, Paul says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and now he's quoting Exodus chapter 9, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show what? My power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God wanted his glory, his name to be proclaimed. He said it this way through Isaiah, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people. Why? To make for yourself a glorious name. Look at Psalm 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them. Why? Why did he save them? For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. You hear what God's saying? God's interested in the glory of his name. And he wants the glory of his name to be spread far and wide. He wants everybody to realize there's hope in his name and only in his name. And we have the joy and privilege of spreading that word. <laughs> Think about this. How many times we have elected presidents who have offered great hope. That's how they get elected. They, they give us hope. And inevitably, <laughs> we ought to learn this, in one way or another, those hopes are always disappointed, aren't they? You know, they don't, they're not able to carry out what they said they would. They can't keep their promises. Only God can ultimately fulfill our hopes, guys. So God's desire is to magnify his name among men throughout the whole earth. And because that's true, and listen, some people get this wrong idea. God is not a man, you understand, a weak man. God is the creator of the universe. God is God. So if he were a man and he wanted all this glory, he would be some kind of narcissist, Right. And some people might think of God as some kind of cosmic giant narcissist who has this massive ego that just needs lots of attention. But because, but the truth is, he's the only one who can save mankind. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the wisdom. He's the one with the love that leads to our redemption. So God does what he does to make his name great because he is what we need. He's doing it for our sake. So that ought to be our goal too, right? Whatever we do, we ought to be saying, how does this affect God's name? David said in Psalm 34, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. If, that's what we need to be doing by sharing what he's doing in our lives. So whatever we do, we need to be asking, how does this affect God's name? And you know, maybe that question, how does this affect God's name? Maybe that really is a dividing point for America. You know, there are those of us who care about God's name. And there's so many today who do not. They, don't, they either don't believe God exists or they believe he's totally irrelevant. And if, and if people make up the decision that God's irrelevant, then what's next? Well, then we'll just decide what's the best for us or what's best for other people. We'll decide for ourselves what the highest good is. We're not going to let God tell us that. So for many, many people in our culture, the highest good is for every single person to decide what's right in his or her own eyes. Personal autonomy. Everybody gets to be his or her little God. We're all sovereign. And so the decision becomes, 
whatever I want to do, I get to do, as long as it doesn't interfere with somebody else's sovereignty of another person. I need to be careful about that. But if you've got consenting adults, hey, whatever you want. That's where we are today. By the way, I, I warn you about this. That age of consent is being pushed downward. You know, about the matters these people care about. The, 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 for example, the age of consent when it comes to the sexual revolution is being pushed down. The age of consent for transgender revolution, that's being pushed down. The age of consent as far as the culture of death is concerned, the, the death of the unborn, death of the infirm, uh, euthanasia, you know, these kind of things, that's been pushed down. So if somebody wants to just humanely be put to death because he's tired of living, we just have, well, that's your right. If that's what you want. There are many, many countries who will do that, and they'll give that right to kids now. From their perspective, God's got nothing to do with this. Just up to me. Someone wants to change his or her God-given gender, they think, hey, whatever you want. It's not up to God. God's got nothing to do with this. It's up to you. Someone says, I feel drawn to homosexual behavior. Just do it. It's not up to God. God didn't have anything to do with this. If some people say, I don't need this child. I'm going to kill this unborn child for whatever reason. Just do it. It's up to you. It's not up to God. And if Christians come along and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That behavior certainly does not magnify the name of God. That behavior is wrong. That behavior is sinful. That behavior is going to lead to pain and destruction. Sin always does. You shouldn't do it. We are not only perceived as being kind of absurd and crazy, we're perceived to be a problem. We're questioning the value of their greatest good. From our perspective, we can see they have a serious cancer called sin that eventually is going to destroy them. And we're their friends and we love them. And we happen to know a doctor who can heal them. His name is Jesus. But from their perspective, they see us as threats to their freedom. And we've got to be silenced. And many of them perceive us to be the cause of everybody else's problems. Some of you may be thinking, Steve, you talk about this an awful lot. You talk about the sexual revolution, this LGBTQ stuff, and an awful lot. Why are you always talking about that? Why don't you just leave it alone? <laughs> and, and I heard a good answer to that sometime back. I'm not exactly sure who it was. It may have been Greg Kokel. I'm not sure, but I heard it on a podcast. And, and people were complaining to him about the same thing. And he said, that's like walking up to somebody, poking him in the eye, and then saying, why are you so focused on that eye? <laughs> why do you keep talking about your eye? <laughs> you see, it's not really Christians who are raising these issues. The secularists around us are the ones raising the issues. And they're demanding that we reject the truth that we've held to for hundreds of years, millennia, actually. They're the ones that's changing everything. They're the ones bringing this up. They're the ones bringing all this attention. So we just have to respond to it in a Christ-like way, which they hate. <laughs> Do you remember that famous quote that for a long time it was attributed to Martin Luther? I thought when I was younger, Martin Luther said this. Sounds a lot like Luther, but it turned out to be in a novel that someone was writing, and this person who wrote the novel put the words into the man who was representing Luther, put them into his mouth. But they're really good. There's something Luther could have said. But listen to this. This, this. I think this is so valuable for us today. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, 
I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldiers proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. You hear what he's saying? The enemy is attacking at certain points, and we've got to take a stand there. We can't say, well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to ignore that and go over and fight somewhere else. No, 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 no. I mean, a lot of times we Christians would be really happy to leave those issues alone, but that's where the enemy is attacking, so we can't leave it alone. Let me give you an example of the tendency to blame Christians. A few years ago, I read an article. It was entitled, this is the title of the article, Survey Finds Excess Health Problems in Lesbians, Gays, and Bisexuals. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to listen to this paragraph. I'm quoting. With nearly 69,000 participants, the survey revealed that lesbian, gay, and bisexual adults were more likely to report impaired physical and mental health, heavy alcohol consumption, and heavy cigarette use. Listen to this. Potentially due to the stressors that they experience as a result of interpersonal and structural discrimination. The lead research scientist wrote this, in caring for people who have experienced bias and discrimination, support is a very potent medicine. Now, there's some truth in that statement. I'm going to agree that, yes, we need to support people in a godly way, but you know how it's going to be interpreted. Some people will say it's impossible to support somebody if at the same time you're calling their, sinful, their behavior sinful. So if you're calling their behavior sinful, that's not support. That's, that's undermining them. That's, that's attacking them. Now, the truth is we Christians have been and continue to be very supportive of people. And we've done this for centuries. This is not new. While at the same time recognizing their behavior sinful. But now we've reached a time that that's not considered possible. Because we have this new state religion, of course, secularism or secular humanism. The individual is sovereign. God's irrelevant. So what was one time understood by almost everybody to be very loving and gracious support, it's now considered to be hateful. It's considered to be bigotry. It's not enough to love people and want the best for them. They say, we don't love them if we don't agree with them. If we don't agree with them, it proves we hate them. <laughs> now, that's nonsense. But for many, many people today, all it takes to, to establish that you are bigoted and biased and discriminatory is to say their behavior is sinful. So what we're being set up for is when some poor sexually confused person turns to cigarettes or drugs or alcohol or maybe suicide. It's horrific, isn't it? It's distressing. It ought to be distressing. But who gets blamed for that? Those who tried to tell him, God's got a better way for you to live. God's got a better plan for you. Because it's perceived that when we tell people that, if we're not endorsing their behavior, we made them feel guilty. We made them feel unloved. We became the stressor, and that caused all the problems. You see how they think? So this right of self-sovereignty becomes paramount. It trumps everything else, including the right to religious freedom, by the way. That's definitely under attack in our day. Let me give you another example. A few years ago, the Supreme Court let stand a ruling against Christian pharmacists in the state of Washington. They had religious reasons for not dispensing abortifacients. Something would cause a woman to have an abortion. The state of Washington passed a law that said you have to do it. And the lower courts agreed with them. And the Supreme Court would not listen to the case. They just let it stand. 
in the past, including now, pharmacies have had the right, and they still do have the right, to send customers to other pharmacies to get drugs that they don't stock for whatever reason. I mean, they don't have to even give a reason. Listen to this example. I'm reading an article that appeared on the dailycaller.com. It it started back in 2006 when a customer visited a pharmacy and asked for Plan B birth control medication. Kevin Stormans recalls, we didn't carry it. We never had a need to. Nobody asked for it. And frankly, at that point in time, I didn't even know what it was. After being told that the pharmacy had no demand for the product, the customer called Kevin and became irate. At which point, Kevin figured he'd better find out what the fuss was all about. I started checking into it and realized that one of the possibilities of this product is that it is life-terminating. After the egg is fertilized, Plan B can prevent it from implanting. We talked about it as a family and said that's not something we can support. That's not a product we're going to carry. Kevin and his family made the decision never to stop Plan B or any other medication with abortion-inducing properties in their pharmacy. When the angry customer called again, Kevin cited his religious beliefs as the reason his pharmacy would not carry the product. Hate mail, picketing, and angry phone calls ensued. The governor of Washington even joined in the boycott, canceling her long-standing account with the store. At one point, business dropped by 30% because of the bullying. Then, the Washington State Board of Pharmacy told Kevin that the regulations governing referrals had recently changed. They insisted the pharmacy carry the drugs or close. The Stormanses chose a third option and sued to defend their freedom and live consistently with their beliefs. What they did not know at the time was how Planned Parenthood had collaborated with the governor to change the regulations to discriminate against people of faith. But they were going to find out. Under the new regulations, a pharmacist could no longer refer a customer to another pharmacy for religious reasons. And yet the state allowed pharmacies to refer customers for any other reason. Religion alone was singled out for discrimination. The Stormans' case finally came to trial in federal court in 2012. Kristen Wagoner, Senior Vice President of Legal Services for Alliance Defending Freedom, describes what happened next. After a 12-day trial, the court found that the regulations were intended primarily, if not solely, to target religious objectors to Plan B and Ella. Even the chairman of the Board of Pharmacy testified that nothing had changed in the practice of pharmacy in Washington State after these regulations became effective, except religious referrals were banned. Pharmacies continued to refer for business, economic, and convenience reasons, but they're not permitted to do so for religious reasons. In fact, 10 times more pharmacies declined to stock Plan B for business reasons than for religious reasons, and 98% of all pharmacies either stocked Plan B or had an effective referral mechanism in place to ensure customers received the drug. The trial court entered over 100 pages of detailed findings on the evidence. He addressed all the states and Planned Parenthood's arguments. Planned Parenthood said, we need this regulation to make sure customers have access to drugs. The court sifted through all the evidence in great detail and held that there is no problem with access to any drug anywhere in the state. There's not one woman in Washington state who's been denied Plan B or Ella due to a pharmacist's religious objection. You can buy these drugs on the shelf next to Tylenol now. The trial court heard from 22 witnesses, most of whom are with the Board of Pharmacy, 
and reviewed thousands and thousands of documents. It concluded that there was no question the state was allowing pharmacies to refer patients many times a day for convenience reasons or to increase their profit. The sole purpose of the regulations was to force pharmacists with religious objections to Plan B out of pharmacy. The federal trial court ruled that the regulations were riddled with exceptions for secular conduct but contained no such exceptions for identical religiously motivated conduct. But Planned Parenthood, the same organization that profits from the dissection of unborn children, insisted that religious referrals must be banned. They appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Incredibly, the Ninth Circuit overturned the initial trial court decision, despite the fact that no new evidence was presented. Wagoner calls the Ninth Circuit ruling alarming. In our Jewish prudential system, when a trial court holds a trial and hears multiple witnesses firsthand and then makes findings of facts about the testimony and evidence, the appellate is only supposed to reverse those findings if it concludes that the findings clearly contradict the evidence. They did not find that here. They ignored the standard of review. Instead, they essentially just decided the case on a record that they created themselves. It's alarming for three significant reasons. First, it's the first time in the history of our nation since the time of the Quakers when we forced someone to participate in the taking of human life. That's what's at issue here. It's the first time we've not protected providers, either legislatively or judicially, from being forced to potentially participate in taking human life. Second, the rationale from the Ninth Circuit's decision can apply with equal force to surgical abortions. This rationale could potentially apply to a doctor who doesn't want to perform an abortion, even a late-term abortion. Under the court's rationale, the doctor could be forced to do so if a law were passed and applied to all doctors. That's a chilling and unprecedented ruling. Third, in terms of how our judicial system is supposed to work, the court had an end, and it didn't seem to care as much about the means to get there. This is deeply disturbing, particularly for those who have believed in the American system of law and justice. Isn't that an amazing illustration of how ungodly people think? Isn't it amazing? They want to force compliance no matter what. Isn't it amazing the inconsistencies of liberals who claim they're so opposed to bullying? It's one of their mantras. We're opposed to bullying, except when liberals are bullying Christians. I don't see how you could see this as anything other than bullying. The people at that drugstore had convictions that it was wrong to kill unborn babies at any stage of development. There were plenty of other drugstores that would provide the abortifacients, but they've been harassed and bullied by liberal individuals and by the state and by the courts, all the way to the Supreme Court, who said, if you don't have the same religion or secularism we do, we'll punish you out of existence. Let me give you one more example of this kind of thing. This happened a few years ago. The California State Senate passed a bill that gave students the grounds to sue Christian schools because those Christian schools were teaching Christian beliefs. <laughs> There's an article in The Federalist by Holly Shearer and said this, this threatens religious institutions' ability to require that students attend daily or weekly chapel services or to keep bathrooms and dormitories distinct according to sex, require students to complete theology classes, teach religion ideas and regular coursework, hold corporate prayer events such as graduation and so on. In other words, it threatens every practice that makes religious institutions distinct from secular institutions. The most troubling provision of this bill limits the religious liberty to integrate faith and learning throughout the educational experience, said Dr. Kurt Kruger, president of Concordia University in Irvine, in a letter about this bill. The bill effectively eliminates the religious exemption under current law that allows Christian colleges and universities to operate in accordance with their beliefs, including the freedom to hire only Christian faculty and staff. How do we get here? <laughs> We've been here for a while now. 
It's because the majority of people have no moral compunction at all regarding the name of God. He is irrelevant. He's not even in their minds at all. And when you get God out of the picture, the highest good is my personal autonomy. The end justifies the means. So there was a time in my lifetime when religious freedom was considered one of the greatest rights and assets that we had in America. And now they say, no, that freedom is not so important after all. It has to be sacrificed on the altar of personal autonomy. The law doesn't matter. Common sense doesn't matter. The Constitution doesn't matter. The Bible certainly doesn't matter. If it serves their purposes, they may use the Constitution or they may try to appeal to common sense of the Bible, but it's, it's just a tool for them. Otherwise, you ignore it. All that matters is what I want, particularly when it comes to sex. And that's where we are. And people who really identify as Christians, I'm serious about it, genuinely care about the glory of the name of God, we better be prepared. We better be prepared to be crushed if we decide to take a stand by a culture that considers God to be irrelevant. You remember what God said? What's your life? It's but a vapor. It appears for a moment. It vanishes away. And it also says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And it also says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And it says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We just need to keep our focus on God. No matter what the world says, no matter what the world does to us, no matter what the world claims, until he calls us home. Anyway, these people Samuel is addressing, they've blown it, but God says, yes, you have blown it, but the past is past. Beginning now, start making the right decisions. I'm going to redeem this problem you brought on yourselves, and I'm going to do it to get glory for my name. That's what God does. One of Satan's greatest tools is to convince people that because we've blown it badly in the past, that we're not useful to God anymore, that God can't use us anymore. Has he ever used that on you? Satan has certainly used it on me. But the history of the church and of God's working through men is filled with people who, just like most of us, have blown it really badly. But God's redeemed our lives anyway, and God uses us anyway, broken as we are, for his great namesake. Verse 23, moreover, as for me, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and right way. And isn't that a great pattern for us now in our current situation in America? I mean, we look around us, we see Americans making really bad choices. But whoever's elected or whoever's in charge or whoever's leading, we have a responsibility to pray for them. We're not going to sin against God by not praying for them. And do our best to instruct people in the good and right way. They may not want to listen. Then excuse us from trying to speak the truth. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. Isn't that important? That last thing, consider what great things he's done for you. Every now and then, guys, we need to stop long enough to make some lists of all the things God's done for us. Helps us keep our perspective when everything seems to be going wrong. <laughs> when we look out and everything seems dark and all the news is bad. Just stop and think of all the good things he's done for us. Verse 25, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And of course, you know the rest of the history. The people basically ignored Samuel's warning. They continued to do wickedly. And eventually they were swept away. The northern kingdom first. That was in 722 by Assyria. 
the southern kingdom next in 586 by Babylon. So there it is. They have blown it badly. But God said, I'm going to redeem this situation for my name's sake. But you got to keep your focus on me, God says. they got to remember what he's done. If they lose their focus, they'll be swept away. And you know what? If we lose our focus, we'll be swept away too. We've got to keep our focus on the Lord. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for reminding us of how similar our situation is to theirs. How easy it is for us to claim we're going to follow you. And then the next thing you know, we've forgotten about you. We're leaving you out of our lives. We're doing things on our own, in our own strength, with our own wisdom. And Lord, we look around at people. We're living in a culture now that's basically decided to ignore you completely. And many, many people are deciding what's right in their own eyes and doing things that are bringing disaster and destruction. And many of your kids, many of your of, of our brothers and sisters are being persecuted and, and punished because they're trying to let the light shine. They're trying to tell people about Jesus. They're trying to stand firm on your truth and on what's right. And they're trying to tell the truth about sin. So, Lord, help us to keep our focus on you and to let you shine through us in such a way that will bring you glory. And help us, Lord, no matter what other people may do or say, to be determined to, to the end, keep our focus on you. Lord, we know that we may suffer for that. But we know we'll also experience the joy of hearing you say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter the joy of your Lord. So, Lord, we look forward to that day. Help us between now and then not to mess up like they did so often and like so many are around us. Help us to keep our focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.